Good day there, guys, and welcome to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. My name is Zach Clark, and I am joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you in this jolly, uh, festive time of year? Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas to one and all. Whoa. Did we get Santa as a guest on the podcast? Well, Santa Claus is inside of all of us, Zach, so yes. Oh, man. Something about a guy that uh, breaks into people's houses and is inside of all of us that I just can't get behind, Brendan. I'm sorry. Oh, you you just don't have the Christmas cheer. I'm, I'm very disappointed to hear. No, that's, that's fair. Uh, I guess I'm a bit of a Grinch in that regard. But uh, yeah, I mean, at the time of recording, you know, we're thoroughly in the thick of the Christmas, New Year, or your holiday denomination of choice for this end of year celebration uh, period. Um, You know, everyone's clocking off work, uh, getting ready to eat too much food, and hopefully play far too many video games. And we figured, what better way to end the year than by just looking back at it and uh, discussing, you know, just our general thoughts and feelings. This is going to be a bit of a on-the-cuff episode, even though, surprise, you might not realize we have notes for our other episodes, the way we ramble, but <laughs> this, this episode, we're, we're, going, we're going rogue. And we're just going to really talk about the, the key highlights, lowlights, themes that we, we really sort of uh, stood out to both of us over the course of 2020. But before we do that, Brendan, with Christmas coming up, I have to ask, do you have any real standout sort of Christmas memories uh, with you in video games? Any cool presents or or Christmas days playing a certain game for many hours trying to avoid talking to your great-great-uncle Josh who's only comes over once a year and wants to ramble about the good old days? Yeah, so there's a few different gaming memories I have related to the holiday season, and I think it's can be broken down into the two categories you just briefly mentioned, that of presents I received and also games that I played during Christmas. And I guess to talk about the games first, I think the quintessential Christmas video game for me and my family, well, my older brother and older sister at the very least, is Mario Party. And we've always generally dragged out Mario Party at Christmas time and played through one of the many ones we own. And one of my favourite memories of Mario Party is Mario Party 4, which one Christmas day we played a round of it and we had a CPU that was Wario who was on the very hardest difficulty. And, of course, we spent the 20 or 25 turns of the game sniping and attacking each other that, at the end of the day, we lost to Wario. And so Wario stole Christmas. I think it was very fitting for the <laughs> character and it was also built a bit of a... It just goes to show what sibling rivalry can do. If you embrace it too much, Warrior will win, and no one wants Warrior to win. Except me, because I usually play as Warrior, so uh, I always want to win, because, you know, Wario is number one. Waha! Charles Martinez joined us as well. Yeah, you know, we, it's a real cavalcade of guests in this uh, <laughs> uh, end-of-year special, as would be appropriate. Yeah, no, I think Mario Party, solid Christmas game for sure. Yeah, it's interesting for me because I, I never had too many people my own age uh, around on Christmas for most years. So a lot of my Christmases were, I guess, playing whatever game I got sort of by myself. Um, but we were at least lucky enough to 
host Christmas at our house pretty much every year. So there was it was a lot easier being able just to duck away after lunch and put up the 64 or GameCube or whatever it was and, and just sort of plow away. But I do have one pretty fond memory of when uh, my cousins and uncle and auntie, obviously from Canberra, were down uh, for one Christmas, probably the biggest one we've had with guests at least. Uh, and it was the year Donkey Konga came out. And uh, that was, you know, pre-Guitar Hero rock band kind of days. But everyone had a blast. It was pretty much from morning to, you know, in the late in the <laughs> late in the evening that people was rocking the bongos to some, um, you know. <laughs> what were some of the songs on that? I remember, um, oh, what's that? It's um, I- Pokemon theme. No. I want to be the very best that no one ever was. There was some of that, but I remember what's that? Um, I get knocked down, I get up again. Song I can't remember what it's called. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean. Um, Smash Mouth. Uh, don't think so. Either way, people audience. No, is that not. a Smash Mouth song though? I don't think so. I think it's like a um, I think it's a bit earlier than Smash Mouth. I think it might be like a British or Irish kind of band that does it. Oh, it's, yeah. Sorry, it's Chumbawamba. Yeah, Chumbawamba. That's it. We'll be singing when we're winning. Anyway. Point being, good times, the old uh, Donkey Konga, and uh, probably set the tone for, for you know, what would eventually be the, the mid-year-long fad of, of instrument games with, you know, Guitar Hero and stuff. <laughs> but yeah, those were some, some good times, and, you know, hopefully this year we'll create some new good gaming memories with, with family. It's probably, I mean, you and I are probably in the similar boat where we don't have a lot of little kids around, unfortunately, because I think that's always... Uh, I don't know, seeing them get new games is, is typically more exciting. These days, no one buys me games because I've bought every game I want by um, well and truly by Christmas, so it's not quite the same experience. Oh, exactly, and that the newness isn't there anyway, even if you do receive a game at Christmas, whereas when you're growing up and you might only get a certain amount of games a year and there's always that one or two that you were dying to get or had on your list and you open it on Christmas Day and you pop it in and you... You, you explore a new world or a new experience. And I think that is something that just due to our age and outlook now that we're not going to be able to recapture. And I think that's just a fact of life. Yeah, no, pretty much. Yeah. Until uh, until like our one of our guests, Matt, have, have kids like him and then experience the joy of giving them games. Though I suppose in this day and age, it's probably more like giving them V-Bucks or uh, Roblox currency. And that's all that's all maybe all they want. Such is life. But speaking of life, uh, 2020, what a year. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing I think you or I can say that hasn't been said by people literally in every household across the world, I think. But we're almost there. We're almost through it. And in Australia, in, in a very okay position uh, compared to other parts of the world. So we're very fortunate here. But, you know, we're going to keep the talk mostly to gaming and what a year it's been for video games and despite everything it has been i think a fairly solid year for video games we've had new consoles launch we've had some very well regarded highly reviewed games release quantity doesn't seem to be an issue uh, it definitely feels like as many games as ever have come out you know if you just looked at the release schedule you wouldn't pick 2020 for being i think any different to previous years i don't know if that's how you're feeling about this all, Brendan, but certainly how I'm feeling. I think there's two parts to that in that for the first half of the year, I think you're very much correct because we had some big releases like from the Nintendo side, we had your Animal Crossing, 
Paper Mario, some other publishers. We had your Ghost of Tsushima, your Final Fantasy VII Remake, Doom Eternal. But personally, it felt that by the time we hit mid-year, there was a bit of a lack of major releases. And yes, there were there have been a few on the back end of the year, like your Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Immortals Phoenix Rising, Cyberpunk, and some of those launch titles for the PS5. There has definitely been a lack of games, but I guess for me personally, that hasn't really bothered me because like yourself, I work a full-time job. I don't have time to play every single new release that comes out. So for me personally, I do agree with you that whilst I do think that there has been an impact this year in the amount of releases, there were enough new games I were interested in to really grab onto and And there was never the moment that I felt like, oh, I wish there was more game releases this year because there's nothing new I can get. There was was always something new I could go out and buy and play if I was so inclined to do. Yeah, I mean, I think probably where it becomes an interesting comparison is, is the lack of games from the second half of the year because of COVID or is it just because new consoles came out? Or more, more likely, it's a mix of both, right? But, I mean, if you looked at the last sort of years of any console generation life cycle it, it's typically like you get a couple of you know you know swan songs or one yeah you know, which which i think it's fair to say we did get this year for um maybe not xbox so much but definitely you know playstation had as you said ghost of tsushima last of us part two kind of echoing what last of us uh i guess part one did for the ps3 followed by you know a bit of a gap to the new consoles launch and some pretty okay but not mind-blowing launch titles. It seems to be the trend. You know, even from a Nintendo perspective, the last sort of year of, like, say, the Wii U, Wii, uh, I think even GameCube, though, that's testing my memory's life cycles, were always pretty sort of bare bones as everyone was holding out for the uh, for the next system to come out. So I wonder if that's almost... Had 2020 been a, a normal year without a pandemic, I wonder if it would have played out relatively the same, albeit there are obviously some games, particularly certain indie games that have clearly attributed delays to COVID uh, quite publicly. Yeah, I think there's those games. I think there's the indie games with small development teams that have clearly been impacted. Like you only had to listen to what Ness had to say when he was on talking about Ring of Pain, that even though that game was well near its end of development cycle and they got it out and released it, there were definitely drawbacks to the development cycle due to well, having to work remotely, not being able to work as a team in person and bounce ideas off and work collaborative, which I think video gaming as a industry is one that does see a lot of collaborative um, working just due to the nature of how it all comes together and you have specialists in design, specialists in narrative, music, etc. And you need all those parts to come together to release your game. And I guess you only have to look at Nintendo's release schedule that I think as a company, they were definitely impacted by COVID in that they didn't really have a major December release because yes, it was Hyrule Warriors, but that wasn't even developed internally at Nintendo. That was a Tecmo Koei game. All the first party studios at Nintendo are either waiting for something like a Switch Pro to release and they have a lineup for that ready or... They simply were adversely impacted by COVID and had to push things back. I think there might be a mix of that and we will only know 
I guess, where the chips lie when those games start coming out and are announced. And we might see, oh, it makes sense because the Switch Pro came out in May 2021 and they needed things ready for that or who knows. But I think there are definitely impacts. I think Sony probably were a bit more insulated because those major games we mentioned like your Ghost of Tsushima and Last of Us Part 2 were early 2020 games. So most of the development would have likely have been finished by the end of last year when COVID wasn't an issue. Look at Microsoft. They really had nothing to launch their console with and their only major release of the year was Gears of War Tactics. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good point. I mean, maybe we just stop for a second and actually have a look at those three, like the three quote-unquote first-party, you know, developers and publishers. I mean, we'll start with Nintendo because I think you, you did hit on a really good point there. Uh, while I know there's a lot of people that are, I'd say, happy with Nintendo this year, uh, and there are reasons to be happy, right? Like Animal Crossing came out and was a, a new Animal Crossing game, and it you know scratched that itch for pretty much every everyone that wanted one of those. Uh, and then obviously Hyrule Warriors is seemingly quite a successful new Zelda spin-off title, um, taking what the previous Hyrule Warriors did but making it a bit more canon i suppose by linking it directly to to breath of the wild uh and its eventual sequel uh and then you got the oddity like the paper mario game origami king which we've we've both talked a lot about in this podcast so it'd be a shame if we didn't bring it up again and um obviously some smaller titles like a, a brain training at the start of the year clubhouse games in the middle of the year and other than that a lot of remakes ports deluxe remasters jump rope game yeah a free jump rope game yeah can't, can't forget that to really in some ways you could say pad out in other ways you might just say oh this is just what they always had scheduled but uh it felt a bit like a padded out year at least from my perspective as someone who has played most of the remakes ports remasters when they originally came out on their various origin systems i suppose so you know as a fellow nintendo fan what, what do you reckon was do you feel like it was a bit of a lackluster year in, in that sense or or am I just being spoiled based on, so, you know, 2017, 18 and uh, 19 and how good some of those years were? I think personally as a gamer, I was pretty satisfied with Nintendo's offerings this year. Like I played through Xenoblade Chronicles X. That was an 80-hour experience. Tick. I've played a lot of Paper Mario, Origami King. Need to go back and finish that soon, hopefully, but. That's another tick. That was a lot of fun so far, and I really enjoy what they did with that game. And Animal Crossing New Horizons, that was the first Animal Crossing game I've bought and really got into, and I enjoy my time with it. Yes, I sort of tapered off after a month or two, and I think there are some issues with that game regarding longevity and just, well, what's in it that actually pulls you back into it aside from being addicted to it. But that's another tick. But there's the other side of the proposition which i do agree with you in that there was some disappointment because just look at 2019 and nintendo's output and you had a lot more big hitters even if it wasn't particularly games that i played like i didn't play pokemon sword and shield but that came out last year i absolutely love fire emblem three houses but in practice i didn't play that until this year anyway i guess it's hard for me to quantify this because I'm not the sort of gamer that will necessarily play games as they release. I sometimes I'll buy them as they release. Of course, you know my uh, vice, but I don't necessarily play them when they release. So I'm the sort of gamer that I have an immense backlog that 
if, for example, Nintendo doesn't release a Breath of the Wild 2 this year or next year, I'll be a bit sad because I'd love to play it because, well, it'll be an excellent game like the first one was, but it's not like I'm going to not have anything to play and not have anything Nintendo to play. There's going to be something that I'll be able to shift to, but that's purely what I'm like as a gamer. Yeah, and I have to admit, as a gamer myself, you know, I'm not upset by the, uh, let's say, lack, not maybe not lack, but the less amount of new content from Nintendo because, uh, yeah, I, I have a big enough backlog that I need to chip through anyway. Uh, and, I and you know, there have been some of the, the old titles I have enjoyed revisiting, right? Like I, I did a, a not a 100% run, but, a, a you know, got credits on Super Mario 64, which was a fun little, you know, weekend or so of nostalgia and sort of, you know, started Super Mario Sunshine. I'm also, while I haven't started it yet, I'm keen to start Pikmin 3 Deluxe and, and give a crack at the particularly the new missions because I do love Pikmin quite a lot as a series really hope it doesn't die out um, as some nintendo franchises tend to do so very much keen to support and, and play a bit of that but yeah i'm definitely hoping that the large amount of ports remakes in it yeah i get it xenoblade is a very good remake i'm not saying it's not still a remake though uh, <laughs> i'm hoping though that means next year is going to be a you know some more new new completely brand new games uh, and it would make sense because there's been quite a few studios from Nintendo that have been fairly quiet for a, a number of years now. And you could see a bit of a, a rollout of, you know, whether it's because of a Switch Pro or whether it's just because things are finished and ready to, to ship. But hopefully a, a pretty active 2021. But jumping from Nintendo, uh, but staying in the same country, how about we talk about Sony for a second well, most of their studios are now outside of Japan, but yeah, well, I, I won't nitpick you too much, Zach. Hey, look, you know, they, they may be outside of Japan, but Japan, you know, take is the one that bosses them around and tells them what to do and what to make at the end of the day. Even though I think the head of Sony, uh, PlayStation at least, is, is not Japanese anymore, but that's besides the point. Yeah, I mean, Sony's year this year, it feels like Sony, has, at least for the PS3, and now the PS4 generation kind of followed what felt like to me like a very similar pattern. Like this year felt a lot like the end of the PS3's life cycle. I mean, again, you got a Last of Us game, which was pretty much the same situation as the PS3. And then add on a, a Ghost of Tsushima as another sort of great swan song to the, to the, to the system. Followed by an okay launch lineup, but not amazing launch lineup for the PS5. I was about to say, I think it's that launch lineup that shows it's their output very much dropped off the cliff after Ghost of Tsushima because, well, what do you have at launch from Sony? You had, well, Miles Morales, which is very much, well, an extended version of Spider-Man. It's just, well, same engine or probably a lot of recycling of assets. Yes, there's a lot of changes they made as well, but it's effectively an add-on and goes to show that that's why it's released on both PS4 and PS5. And otherwise, the exclusives on PS5 at launch are either third-party ex- exclusives or small bite-sized things from Sony, like, well, you had Astrobot's Playroom and you had a Sony-developed Demon Souls remake, which, well, like Nintendo's output, yeah, it's a nice remake like Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, but it's effectively a port. Well... You're obviously forgetting the best 
Sony exclusive launch title, which was, uh, you know, Sackboy's Big Adventure, Brendan. Uh, <laughs> um, albeit, it must be so big that I've never heard of it before you uttered that word. <laughs> I mean, albeit it was made by Sumo Digital, so obviously not a, a proper first party game, I guess second party by that definition. Um, and, and on PS3 as well. Uh, sorry, not PS3, oh, PS4 as well. But yeah, I mean, all in all, though, I think a fairly expected year from Sony, like nothing felt wrong as a final year for uh, the PlayStation 4 slash first month and a bit of a PS5. Obviously, PS5s sold out everywhere, are very hard to get a hold of no matter where you live. So that's that's a tick for them. Not that it's a surprise given it's it's you know Christmas time and uh, I'm sure they did have some supply constraints because of COVID, whether they admit to it or not. Oh, they definitely do. Like, just look at the Japanese sales to the PS5. It's never really took off yet because they just don't have stock. It's only underperformed because of supply in that market uh, as opposed to, you know, not demand. But I would say not a year without any controversy, right? I mean, we sort of touched on this with the reviews before, but it was interesting to see that their two swan songs both I feel, you know, Ghost of Tsushima and Last of Us 2 weren't just pure, you know, 10 out of 10s, loved by everyone kind of games. I mean, Ghost of Tsushima maybe less so, but I definitely feel like it got a bit of that, uh, you know, open world, tower, sort of finding game structure uh, fatigue was felt at the time when it launched. And that's certainly something that deterred me from picking it up, even though I love the aesthetic and I love the uh, the theming of it, and it's probably something I would give a shot at some stage. And then obviously The Last of Us 2, we probably won't go into too much detail, but that had some massive backlash from um, from a lot of fans, for better or worse, or right or wrong reasons. It's it's unfortunately just not as beloved as the first one, on a, on a, you know, across the, the broader fan base. But despite all that, still took away Game of the Year at... Uh, Jeff Keighley's The Game Awards, if you count that as the definitive source of what is Game of the Year. And nearly every other award as well, by the looks of it. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, probably one of the most interesting awards, and I saw some comments about it, was the uh, best studio. And a lot of people are saying, whether it's the best game or not, do you give best studio to any studio that has admitted to using Crunch as a means to get their games done? And that topic in general, I think, has been stronger in 2020 than ever. Yeah, which I've always thought is a bit reductive at the end of the day, arguments like that, because how do we really know if a studio does crunch or not? Not every studio is going to get on their rooftop and shout that they do crunch, or will their employees do the same? Like, most Japanese studios are very insular in that way, and there's no culture for them to get on the internet or get on Twitter and complain about it or for ex-employees to do the same. So we might think, oh, Tecmo Koei never does crunch because we never hear about it. But is that really the case? Is that really what happens on the ground? And it's the same with indie games. Sure, there's small studios and single dev teams, but they crunch as well because they are limited by resources. You just have to look at the history of games like Stardew Valley, the development cycle of that, the can't remember his name, but he spent hundreds of hours on his own just working on that game and got it done, but basically didn't have a life outside of it. So does that mean that we shouldn't laud his efforts because we we argue that, oh, you created this under very bad working conditions? I, 
I think it's it's a very complex topic in my view, and it's not as black or white as crunching is bad and not crunching is good. I think it's it goes to the heart of how video games as an industry is structured, which I know this is a bit of a segue and a bit of going off topic, but I think that's what I think of the whole crunch thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a worthwhile talking about because it is a big topic of this year and maybe one day we'll do a more wholesome po- uh, topic on a uh, podcast on it, even though I think it's a bit hard for us to comment 100% because none of us or neither of us have been game developers. We don't quite mm-hmm. know what it's like. But, I mean, back to your point about Japan, I mean, another good reason that doesn't get talked about, right, is, well... Japanese work culture is kind of like crunch work culture, if that makes sense. If game devs had to complain about staying at work to 10 p.m., uh, they probably get a lot of resounding nods from uh, every salary man and woman in uh, in Japan because that's just what work life is there. Uh, and you know, it's it's changing like it is changing here in in the West, but it's just probably quite a few years behind our push towards work life balance. But that's not to say that. You know, in the West, it's only game dev that has crunch, right? Like, I'm pretty sure you and I would have experienced overtime uh, of the unpaid nature in our lines of work at some point. And there's a lot of fields, particularly professional services, where, you know, there's an expectation that at certain times of the year or when a certain event occurs, you will be working, you know, longer days. And it it's all just kind of comes with the salary you get. It, it doesn't include overtime for those periods. So... It is a difficult topic to discuss because, again, while gamer Twitter will make you believe it's very unique to it, that industry, it really isn't. And I think it just speaks more broadly of issues, potentially, if you want to call them that, of, of our, our society than it does of game dev specifically. And I think, likewise, the only resolve, way to resolve it is broader societal change. Well, not the only way. There's definitely, you know, you can push within your own studios to, to reduce current crunch, but I don't think it'll completely be gone until society as a whole changes. Exactly. And I think that's just the nature of deadlines in a workplace in that in an ideal world, well, if you need to get something, if you're an accounting firm and need to get something done by end of financial year, it's either work long hours or hire more people. And more often than not, the latter option isn't really an option because that incurs other types of costs and the like. It's not as simple. It's not as simple as oh, this company's evil because it's telling its employees that they need to work longer. It's more that in the many cases as well, you need to get the work done, or otherwise we're going to go out of business as a company. And I think some people forget the gaming studios and developers and publishers are similar in that regard. In that, if they don't get a product out and shipped and selling it on store shelves, their bottom line is going to be affected. And that's not just necessarily the bottom line of shareholders and the owners of the company. That all, it does funnel down to, well, employees. If a company doesn't produce any gains for a while, well, they won't be able to pay any of their staff and they'll have to shut down. So it's it's a lot more complicated than this studio is evil because it makes its staff crunch to finish games. I think it's, I think that for better or worse, there are many situations where they unfortunately don't have a choice and like you say it, it, it's reflected broadly throughout other businesses throughout society and i think we very much see the conversation in games because people see it as a well they see it as a creative endeavor and they see it as an entertainment source and they people are becoming more and more inclined towards i guess being an ethical consumer and 
and you see that throughout consumer goods and I think it, it very much derives from that mentality. Yeah, well, hopefully everyone becomes ethical consumers and results in me never having to work overtime again because I'd love that, you know, ethically consume everything <laughs> in your life and not just your video games. Here, here. <laughs> but anyway, and I guess we'll finish off this sort of three-way look at the, the, the big three with Microsoft who had, as you kind of already touched on, Brendan, a pretty, somehow a bland year, like with very little going for it other than the launch of its new systems and i guess gears tactics minecraft dungeons yeah mi- minecraft Dun- does that count well i mean arguably their biggest release is microsoft flight simulator not for xbox yet but still a microsoft published game uh that took the internet by storm for a good few oh, weeks of course. but still a fairly bland year i have friends that were trying to crash airplanes into melbourne uni so <laughs> it definitely did take off yeah, it took off and came crashing down very quick. But the game's still selling well, I think. But regardless, despite its bland year, I feel like it felt fairly positive for Microsoft. And I think that's just got a lot to do with their, potentially just their marketing and primarily the success or the continued success of Game Pass. It certainly makes me feel a lot better about the idea of owning a, a Series X or upgrading my PC and, and getting a Game Pass subscription than I had in the past. I don't know if that's sort of how you're feeling about Microsoft, but it's definitely my takeaway from 2020. I definitely agree. It's a complete shift in strategy that has people, I guess, I wouldn't say disregarding the fact they haven't made any major releases, but I guess shifting their focus to other things in that, well, you go Microsoft now because they offer you a service in Game Pass where you get new Microsoft games day one and you get a slate of third-party published games day one or close to day one. It's similar to Netflix in that you never really hear people complain, oh, there's no major release on Netflix this month. I guess the other side of that coin is generally Netflix are quite good at pumping out content quite frequently. There's always new movies or TV shows or whatnot popping up. But for the most part, most of them are very average and it's only... A couple of times a year, you'll have series hitting Netflix and everyone jumping on to go watch it. Like the most recent one for Netflix was Queen's Gambit Mm. the other month that has a lot of people talking. But I guess my point is that that's the sort of model Microsoft's going towards in that they want people constantly going to Game Pass and just playing whatever that is on Game Pass that they haven't played yet. And I think that's what that they're moving away from this idea of, oh, you need X amount of tentpole games a year in that. Well, we will offer that long-term, but that's not all we're about. We're about you jump on the Xbox because you get a multimedia platform that you can game, you can do other things, and as long as you subscribe, there'll be a steady stream of content straight to your console. I think, you know, part of me is excited just to see how that changes the industry. You know, obviously, there's, we've said before, the collector slash preservationist in me has some concerns around the idea of just having this rental service. But at the same time, it has a lot of pros. Um, I, I actually subscribed to Game Pass last month to give Outer Wilds a shot because it was, you know, it's the kind of game that I don't think has a physical release. I wasn't sure whether I'd like it. And for a dollar, I figured I'd, I'd give it a crack. And since then, it's, it's, I've just sort of dabbled in stuff, you know? Like, I dabbled in Battletoads, for example, which is a game I probably wasn't going to buy, but definitely had enough curiosity to download and give a shot, given it wasn't 
something I had to pay extra for, I suppose. And then like a sucker, I've just forgot to unsubscribe. So I ended up paying the, the 16 or $18 monthly fee this month. So they, they got me good. But what Microsoft did do, which was sort of different, I guess, to what we see a lot of companies do this year was they indefinitely delayed it. You know, sort of the final hour, not quite, but but close enough to launch that it was, a, I think, a big deal, but Halo Infinite, and not even giving it a real definitive release date compared to, you know, normally when you see a game launching holiday 2020 and then gets delayed, what, maybe was it August or something this year, just to 2021, you would expect it to be like, oh, it'll be March or it'll be April or something, but no, just, just 2021 could be could be at any point most likely feeling towards the end of 2021, which I thought was an interesting move uh, and a bit of a surprise. Again, maybe it's indicative of COVID having impacts on the development and they just really want to get back in the office as a team and have a real consolidation of what they need to do to get this game to the condition that it needs to be, they, they feel. Or maybe, again, just they've seen all the backlash to crunch and said, we're not going to do a delay that requires crunch so we're gonna just keep the date ambiguous and take as much time as we need and leading into 2021 it sort of still is their only game with a solid release date which still makes you wonder do they have after buying all these studios like a good i guess cadence of development cycles with their games it's it's hard to really pinpoint how they're going to go going forward I'll tackle your points a bit in reverse, starting with the new development teams. I think due to the development cycles, I think the output of those teams, we're going to be waiting another year or two to actually see it. Because if you do a quick rundown of them, well, Obsidian, it's not long ago that they released Outer Worlds. Well, that was 2019, so... If for argument's sake, we say, well, after they finished that, they went straight on to their new games, which are those or what's their first person skyrim s game called again i forget it's got a generic fantasy kind of name <laughs> but it's in the pillars of eternity universe yep they also announced another game alongside that that was a bit more further in development so i think they do have it i can't remember the name for the life of me it's the one when you're in your garden you everything sort of shrunk down to insect size oh uh, i think it's in early access i think it's in early access yeah yeah, yeah. the um God, yeah, it's escaping me too. Yeah, but so we'll probably see that in 2021. If you look at In Exile games, well, they just released Wasteland 3 this year, so and you knew, and they are a relatively small studio, so it'll be another year or two, or it'll at least be 2022, 2023 until another game from them. Double Fine is similar in that, well, their game that, that is in development is Psychonauts 2, and that's multi-platform, <laughs> and I think they intend to keep that multi-platform. That's also been through a bit of a continual, I don't know if delay is the right word, but you keep you keep thinking it's going to come out, and it never quite does. <laughs> well, because that was not kickstarted, but that other crowdfunding Fig, platform. Yeah, which I think Double Fine, or at least Tim Schafer, had a some sort of investment in at some point. Yes, I think he used some of the broken age money on it <laughs> for memory. Hmm. Yeah, so I think just, well, just rattling off those three, I think it goes to show that a lot of those are still far off from actually providing output for Microsoft's new consoles next year. 
So I think, in effect... Oh, and then, of course, you have things like Age of Empires 4, but that will be PC-orientated. We might get to see that next year. That might be 2022. We still don't know. I was just going to quickly say, you've got a couple of announced titles. Obviously, Perfect Dark from The Initiative uh, was just announced. Sinuous Sacrifice or Hell, uh, the, the new Hellblade is also announced, but no real gameplay, no, no. <laughs> release dates. Could they be next year? Could they be 2022? We don't know. <laughs> Well, similar to Rare's latest game that they announced, but yeah. they don't, they even admitted themselves that they don't know what the gameplay is going to be like. So, who who actually knows when we'll see that game or if that game will actually release? And to go on to the first point you made, which I'm addressing last to, for continuity's sake, mm. of course, you have, well, Halo. And I think that is an example of just the backlash getting to them in that. I think they underestimated the reaction to the fact that it's a cross-gen game in that they probably thought, oh, it can basically look like an Xbox One game with a few enhancements and people will be happy. But due to, I guess, it being pushed out to launch of the Xbox Series X, people expecting, oh, this is going to be the game to sell me on Xbox Series X. This is going to show off the hardware. This is going to be the showcase like Halo Combat Evolved was for the xbox original and it clearly wasn't from what we saw and we we saw quite detailed gameplay that was sort of that was quite a developed trailer which was using all in-game engine and the like so they very much could have released the game this year if they wanted to i think just the fact is it would have probably received a even harsher backlash than cyberpunk has (laughs) even if it actually would have worked unlike cyberpunk on ps4 and xbox one which by our reports, doesn't. So I, I don't think it's a fact that Microsoft are scared of embracing crunch. I think it's more of a fact that they need to severely and dramatically overhaul the game. I wouldn't be surprised if they dropped Xbox One support, honestly, when they re- unveil it again. And I, I think that might be actually the right move, just make it an Xbox Series X exclusive and be done with it. Yeah, I think I agree at this point. You know, the Xbox One was a bit of a, by all accounts, uh, not didn't sell as well as they ever hoped. So I think there is some value in just going Xbox Series S and X are the, the platform supported for their big hitter titles going forward or allow people to access it through xCloud on their Xbox Ones if they want uh, as an option. But we'll see. I've mentioned it a few times, but it reminds me of reading Jason Shry's book, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, and it well, and each chapter is on basically the development history of a different game. And he has consecutive chapters, one on Dragon Age Inquisition and one on The Witcher 3. And I think one of the things you gather from reading both of those chapters side by side is Dragon Age Inquisition. They ran into a lot of issues because they tried to launch on basically two generations of platforms simultaneously. And for Witcher 3, they just focused on next gen. They just focused on PS4 and Xbox One and Yes, they did still run into they still ran into development issues. They still had to crunch. They still had long hours, but the finished product was a lot better and a lot more cohesive, and they could actually achieve their ambition. Whereas towards the end of Dragon Age Inquisition's development, they realised, oh, because we've compromised and trying and we're trying to fit this onto two generations of platforms, it's not the best game it could have been. And I think ultimately that's one of the big things that can occur through trying to 
grapple with this cross-gen release model and I'm sure we'll get onto it later in this episode, but that's exactly what happened with Cyberpunk. Yeah, well, I mean, why, why wait? Let's just jump onto it now because we've, we've talked about it a couple of times. But uh, yeah, very fresh in our memory. Cyberpunk 2077 uh, announced what? Like nine years ago or something? Or at least in development. 2012? Yeah, eight, eight years ago. A long time ago. The big new game from the, the Witcher Studio CD Project Red. Every last, I think, really ramped up the last two or three years at E3 and similar events with large demo sort of not playable by the audience, but played on the sort of stage or behind closed doors with lots of rave reviews of said demos from journalists across the world. Delayed a few times from, I think, last year up until now, I suppose, uh, with, I think, two delays this year, including one relatively last minute, one from September Wait, no, was it from November? Yeah, November to December was the last one. But there was a, a September to November one. You're losing track. Uh, I'm losing track, I should say. But by all accounts, up until launch, looked very, very promising. And CD Projekt Red had kind of, for better or worse, built themselves up as kind of like the people's open-world RPG developer after, you know, BioWare, Bethesda had had some issues with you know their last releases like mass effect andromeda and anthem for bioware and then fallout 76 for bethesda and they kind of been tarnished in the eyes of fans people looked to cd project red as like oh the witcher 3 is great and here we have the same team making a brand new open world futuristic uh dystopian game that looks amazing promising that they won't do any crunch or anything like that because that's not who they are they're good guys they're good people but that is just not what happened. <laughs> and it, it's it's sad. I mean, you know, I'd be keen to get your thoughts because I think, you, well, unlike me, you've actually played the game on your, on your computer, Brendan. From a company perspective, CD Projekt Red is quite an interesting one because you're right. They have very much cultivated this image as a, a gamer's company because you have things like, well, they own GOG and GOG is one of the few platforms that is completely DRM-free in that every game you buy on GOG, will you can install it on as many PCs or laptops as you want. You can go to your friend's laptop and log into your GOG account and download the games you own onto their computer and they can play them. It's very different to Steam, which everything you buy is tied to your account. So from that perspective, they're very much seen as, well, this is a consumer's company. This is one that cares about consumers rights and that part of being a gamer then you have the game development studio which when you think about it they've existed for nearly 15 years at this point i think maybe a bit longer and in that 15 years they have released a grand total of four games plus some spin-off things like gwent and the like which let's not count those but let's say for argument's sake they've released and developed four major games and those are The Witcher 1 to 3 and now Cyberpunk. From that perspective, they aren't that large of a publisher. It very much is a single developer company that has started to grow exponentially after having a lot of successes and I guess being assisted by realities such as operating in Poland where things are a bit cheaper so they can scale up a lot more than, for example, if they were located in the US. I guess the point I'm trying to get to is that the games have been 
all the games they've released have had interesting, I guess, histories behind them and have been received in interesting ways. Because if you go back to the original Witcher, aside from Cyberpunk, that's the one CD Projekt Red game I've played and completed. And boy, I can tell you the story in that is fantastic. The atmosphere is great, but the actual gameplay and the graphics leave much desire and use the old Bioware engine that Bioware used prior to Dragon Age Origins. And The Witcher 1 came out around the same time as Dragon Age Origins. And if you compared those games side by side, well, I can tell you The Witcher 1 left much to be desired. But there was something there. There was CD Projekt Red's strength in narrative design and storytelling was always apparent in that it was successful enough to then for them to then go on to The Witcher 2, which... I haven't played it yet, but it's a much more tighter experience. They managed to get an Xbox 360 release out and they very much scaled from there. And then you had Witcher 3, which was their huge open world release. And that had some issues at launch. There were some bugs and the like, but for the most part, people absolutely adored it. All the expansion packs for that were critically acclaimed and they just kept on building steam above that. And then you go to Cyberpunk, which they piped it up so much from very much the reception of The Witcher 3 and the reputation they built as a company that I honestly think outgrew their capabilities in that I'm enjoying what I've played a Cyberpunk. I'm about 18 hours in and I'm playing on PC, so I haven't really faced many of the crashes and graphical glitches and the like that other people have played, especially PS4 and Xbox One players. Like, yes, there's been some visual glitches, yes for whatever reason, foliage and trees keep on clipping into the screen wherever I go, which is a bit (laughs) annoying. But from a gameplay perspective, I can play it as it's intended. I think, is it it the best game ever from the gameplay design if there's no issues with graphics and and performance? No, it's not the best game ever. There's serious issues with how the game design was conceived and implemented that go back to issues I had with The Witcher 1 in that the gameplay really isn't that fun. Like, the combat mechanics are pretty stock standard for first-person shooter open-world games. I think you play CD Projekt Red games for the world-building and the narrative design and the storytelling, and my view is that's all there when the game runs, which I've been lucky enough that I can run it on my laptop and I can experience that. But I think... What I'm trying to say is people expected Cyberpunk 2077 to be this revolutionary experience to take open world games to the next level. And I just don't think that CD Projekt Red are necessarily the company that is actually capable of doing so. So, Because I don't think they've actually ever done that in their history. Witcher 1 was basically playing catch up. Witcher 2 was a consolidation of the Witcher. And I think Witcher 3 was, yes an excellent game by all reports, but very much was just iterating on other open world games. And it was lucky enough that it was just, I guess the first cohesive, well-implemented, well-designed open world game of the PS4, Xbox One generation that it was able to stand out and able to captivate people. And I think Cyberpunk 2077 trying to be cross-gen and very much just, reiterating on Witcher 3 but in a different setting 
result has resulted in the fact that it just hasn't been able to reach what people were expecting of it. Yeah, I mean that's that's good to or well, interesting to hear again as someone who hasn't looked too much into the gameplay design elements. Yeah, it's as a person that was never interested in getting Cyberpunk, I have thoroughly enjoyed the discourse around it. <laughs> a bit of <laughs> bit of, bit of Schadenfreude, I suppose. Have you played any of the Witcher games before, or also a series you're not particularly interested in? No, not 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 particularly. I mean, I've dabbled in them, at, but I don't own them. But I remember Witcher Three being loved, aside from the combat, and uh, I remember they did some very excellent consumer practice or consumer um what do you call it consumer positive practices or whatever with with free DLC and good DLC, albeit which which is always nice, and that won them a lot of fans. Before that, I sort of, similar to you, I remember Witcher 1 and 2 being these kind of like niche open world RPG games that some people knew of, some people enjoyed, but they weren't particularly, you know, highly regarded in the same vein as like an Elder Scrolls or a Dragon Age. But I think it was just, yeah, as you said, the perfect storm of people had been recently let down by other big RPG studios. Witcher 3 was just as good as it was, and they did such a good job at building up uh, favor with their customer base at that point in time and then you know follow that with a nine year or eight year hype cycle for a what albeit a game that when it runs on a high-end pc from all the footage i've seen actually looks amazing like it it's stunning oh it really does yeah it's it captures that cyberpunk aesthetic which i don't think any game has been able to do so thus far yeah and in that sense it's a bit of a shame you know, that they couldn't, or it's not that they couldn't, right, but they chose not to just be open and honest because that's all it really comes down to in my mind. It was the, whether you call it a lie, whether you call it a hidden truth or unsaid, you know, truth, the fact that they never showed the PS3, sorry, PS4 or Xbox One versions of the game and continued to show only footage on a high-end PC uh, for everything up until launch... And including only sending out PC review codes, you know, from my understanding, for most big games from most big publishers, you can kind of request, you know, which system you want it on or get it on all of them, right? A good example recently would be something like Immortals Phoenix Rising, which launched from everything from the Switch to the PS5. And, you know, it was take your pick from from reviewers, uh, which is how it should be, in my opinion. Definitely agree. And there were some reports from some reviewers that, they didn't get offered a code from CD Projekt Red because they were known channels that generally do comparison between all releases. Yeah, and I think that level of shady business practice is really marred this this game. Because I think if they'd just come out, I don't know, a few months ago and said, hey guys, look, here's the situation. This game looks and runs very good on PC. There's still some glitches, but it's the game you expect it to be for the most part, but we just haven't got there on the PS4, Xbox One, or just console versions in general. Instead, what we're going to do is release PC this year so they can get some sort of money, because I think it all comes down to money, right? They didn't release it now because they wanted to. They did it because they there was some financial gain of doing it in December, probably just the holiday period, and some target they really needed to meet. How Whatever that is, I don't know. But if they'd done that and then just said, we're going to release the console versions in March or just keep it vague, Q1, Q2, 
Q2 first half 2021. Yeah, would people have been upset? Of course they would have. It wouldn't have been great, but I tell you what, it would have been better than this because now you've got mm. you know people refunding the game, console platforms removing it off their store. I mean, I know other games have come back from similar disasters. Uh, you know, a big one being No Man's Sky, but it's not easy. <laughs> and I, I definitely don't think anyone that purchased and then refunded it on a system like the PS4 is is likely to rebuy even when they get the word that it's fixed. No, and I think they very much should have just cancelled the Xbox 4 and... Sorry, not (laughs) Xbox 4, that doesn't exist yet. I I think they very much should have just cancelled the PS4 and Xbox One releases and just focused on PC and next-gen, maybe do a reverse Red Dead Redemption, just release it on PC in 2020 and then Xbox Series X and PS5 in... 2021 because even if you look at the current situation with the game by all reports it does run okay on xbox series x and ps5 because they both have backwards compatibility so you can play previous generation games on them so from that perspective those are hardware that can run it in its present state even if there are still issues so they very much should have just doubled down and done that and i honestly think there would have been less backlash if in July 2020, earlier in the year, they had announced, well, we're dropping PS4 and Xbox One because, well, it just doesn't run on these consoles and we don't want to compromise the experience. And I think, yes, there would have been backlash and yes, it would have been outrage, but I think it would have very much paled in comparison to what we received now. And they could have even released the PC game, the PC version in its current state as they did a couple of weeks ago and I think the reception would have very much matched well the early reviews that came out those sort of high 80s low 90s and I think the perception of the game would have been radically different even if the build was exactly the same yeah well I think they just got themselves too far ahead in the marketing cycle uh, and and signing on deals right like we had that there was an Xbox series no gotta get my words right Microsoft and you confusing console titles xbox one x cyberpunk system that was released middle of the year and also a bunch of merchandise and all that kind of stuff i think they just found themselves too far down the rabbit hole in licensing deals and marketing promotion that they walked themselves you know onto a plank and just kept walking closer and closer until they jumped off which is a shame because yeah if they maybe announced this game a bit later or just really, really thought about it. They, they could have handled this much more, you know, smoothly. And even if they didn't cancel the Xbox One or PS4 versions and just release them, I think that could have still worked because we are talking about the same company that got Witcher 3 working on a Switch, right? Like, they've shown that there's people there, I mean, even if some of it was outsourced. That was entirely outsourced, I believe, Saber Interactive, because I believe there was a very humorous interview where... I think it's the people from Sabre or maybe it's someone from CD Projekt. But regardless, basically, CD Projekt Red was showing the build of Witcher 3 running on the Switch and they were basically like, what? This is possible? How how, how, how is this possible? This shouldn't work. Yeah, well, they should have gone to those guys much sooner and said, guys, you know how you did that for this PS4 game that should not run on a Switch and got it to run on a Switch? And I'll be a, be a, uh, a very 
one of the I hear the best ports of a, a high end game onto the Switch itself. Get that them to do it for you know Cyberpunk because I'm sure that somebody out there could have. There's a lot of studios out there that excel at these compression and sort of you know learn where to to you know cut corners on graphics and textures and that kind of stuff to still maintain the core experience. But uh, instead, they just stuck to their guns, released it, and hoped that people would just shut up and wait for a patch. Which you know, good to see that people aren't, and there is some backlash. Oh, I definitely agree. Like, uh, yes, I'm a fan of the game. I've enjoyed my time with it. It's probably one of my favourite games of 2020 so far, but the reaction is deserved. They very much did drop the ball in that regard, and those console releases, in good conscience, should not have been released because they are, from what I've seen from videos and heard from rants on Twitter and forum posts, it's it's just simply broken. But let's move on. Before we get to the positive stuff, I need to go on one rant about what was my personal biggest disappointment from the year. And you know what I'm about to talk about, Brendan. And it's a topic that is undercovered, I reckon, in the gaming journalist scene this year. <laughs> uh, other than the good, Here we go. Yeah, the good people at Vooks, I think, are pretty, um, pretty good at keeping on top of it. But nowhere else seems to, to talk about it. And that is Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles Remastered, which I didn't think would be topped this year in terms of blunders until Cyberpunk came along. But Oh, I think I think that still tops Cyberpunk in the fact that you couldn't play that in Australia or New Zealand yeah. and they had to take it off because it just actually couldn't run. Like, it, it was impossible to run in that region. Well, I mean, when you say was, you should say is because we are in December, the game released in... <laughs> august it has received multiple patches to improve other issues with it and it still doesn't run in australia or new zealand and that's across all three platforms it's on mobile playstation 4 nintendo switch so it's not like it's a, a weird switch issue or a weird playstation issue it's literally just this game and whatever servers they're using for some reason hate australia and, and new zealand Combine that with what apparently is a fairly glitchy game, despite just being a literal port of a GameCube title um, with with some you know up, upgraded textures, but not a ton of work done to it, as well as just disappointing choices around what was originally a, a hallmark multiplayer dual screen experience for the GameCube in a time where there weren't too many console sort of multiplayer RPG campaigns, I would say. They, they just made it only online that you could play. There was a demo version, so you could at least, you know, potentially play with some friends without them having to own the game, but their progress just never got saved. So you couldn't, you know, play over multiple sessions without everyone owning a copy. It's just a such a, a shame because it's a game that has always been tricky to play because it required a GameCube and, and four Game Boy Advances and four <laughs> Game Boy uh, Advance to GameCube adapters. Uh, just to get a session going and then you have to hope your friends have a, a whole day or a weekend to sit down and play with you um, or committed to come back every week much like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign because it was not short by any stretch and so this would have provided potentially a great opportunity to play through it properly with friends with both online and local options but they just didn't do it uh, and, and as I says you the biggest issue for us here is we literally can't <laughs> unless I go to another country that cannot play it at all. It's disgusting. 
and by the sounds of it, you wouldn't want to play it at all anyway, which I think is a real travesty of it. In that they they were incapable of taking a seventeen year old game and making it playable on next on current generation hardware. Like that's an indictment on that company, honestly. Yeah, I mean the fact I didn't buy it is an indictment because I have put up with some pretty average remasters and ports for the sake of nostalgia in my time. Uh, <laughs> like I'm not a hard sell. As long as it works, I'll I'll probably buy your remaster of a game I enjoy, and. Uh, yeah, you couldn't even meet that. They couldn't meet that hurdle. And it's it's Square Enix. We're not talking random indie studio who's who's running on a shoestring budget. We're talking a fairly long-standing, it's probably got a good bit of cash behind it, company from Japan that should be able to do something like that. And, and to be fair, also a company that remasters stuff all the goddamn time. Like, they re-release stuff <laughs> so much that this should be their bread and butter. So anyway, I just had to rant about that. No, and no, I think you're entirely justified. Like, even look at the output for the rest of 2020 because you had a similar... Well, you kind of had somewhat of a similar situation in that they created a remake of Trials of Mana and that, by all reports, was a solid release. That was even more than a port. They pretty much just 3 d that game and people enjoyed it. Yes, it probably gets sort of high... I think it's sort of mid to high 70s on open critic, Metacritic, but... That's still a solid experience. Like, if, if they did that for Crystal Chronicles and it got similar scores, people would have applauded it and thought, oh, it, all the fans would have jumped around and say, oh, it's like what we played on the GameCube and it's more accessible, this great. There wasn't a high bar for them to clear and they they failed clearing that low bar. So I think that is sort of one of the big disappointments for people who really wanted that game in that, it wasn't a hard thing for Square Enix to do, but nonetheless, they absolutely screwed it up. Yeah, screwed it up and then some. Yeah. It's it's, it's like they, they came to your house, they whacked your dog in the head with a baseball bat and then burnt down your house. I mean, it's, it's, that's how I feel. Uh, that level of betrayal from, from yeah. Square Enix, it's, it's a travesty. But, you know, it hasn't been all doom and gloom from third parties there has been some again some good releases this year uh and in particular you know i would say so the independent scene has thrived in 2020 uh or at least the ones that made the big splashes i can i can think of that were both indie games among us obviously being a massive one not even released this year but just resurged this year thanks to uh again the the remote nature of socialization, oh, not socialization, but remote nature and how we socialize, sort of leaning really well into that type of game, which which by all accounts is very similar to your, your mafias, your werewolves, your resistances, those sort of social deduction card games that people have played for many years, uh, but in video game form and online. You know, that's been a fantastic story from a team of, of three that were, were disbanded and then came back because, oh, people like our game again i don't know have you played much among us this year so i did try among us i played two sessions of it and i am quite impressed with how yeah that's such a simple concept hadn't been done before and hadn't been executed as well before like i'm sure there's games that have similar principles and similar ideas underlying them but the fact that they did achieved it, they made this game and it flew under the radar for two years is, I find, quite 
remarkable. Yes, it is very hard to break through as an indie because, well, there's so many indie releases every year or every day even. And I still get emails from PR companies that had my email down from when I did Another Castle in Heroes of Play reviews and the like. And just the amount of games that come out on a weekly basis is astounding. And these are games that if I didn't receive these emails, I would have never heard of before. So I do understand how it did fly under the radar, but Nonetheless, it's such a remarkable story in that it emerges this year. They cancel development they had of Among Us 2, which I'm surprised they even had a market for Among Us 2 since it seems like Among Us flew under the radar so much. And it just sort of, it snowballed that now it's a huge phenomenon that people I work with know about it because their children play it. And it's it's sort of on the level of Minecraft now. And I find that, well, it's, there's two parts of my reaction to it in that it's astounding because it's indicative in one way of what COVID's done in that it's moved things online and it's very popular because of that online ca- uh, aspect of it that it's so easy to pick up and play. Like I, I both times I played it, I played it on my phone. It's a free download. You download it, you t- turn it on, you go into a room your friends have made and off you go. It's, and it's very simple to learn how to play it it's not a difficult game at all and but it has a lot of strategy in it it has a lot of just fun in it and especially with a tight group of friends is i can't think of any other experience gaming wise in recent memory that's just achieved what it has have have you played a lot of sessions of among us in the past six months yeah i definitely have i mean my core group of friends back in the day were big werewolf fans during uni we played like well during its height like two or three times a week i reckon that at melbourne central (laughs) at the uh the food court there (laughs) in groups of of six to sometimes you know 10 or 12 uh so i love social deduction games like among us and it sort of takes what Werewolf and Mafia, which are sort of, I think it's called, you know, the EXEs, I think Space Mafia.exe. So they're not hiding where they got the idea from. But it takes that and, and adds what only video games can do. And I think what really makes it even better is the, the tasks, which are effectively like mini games, right? That you have to perform as the, as the good team. Uh, and I think that's ingenious because it adds a level of role-playing that is very different to the one, you know, Werewolf and Mafia where you're just, it's all about how you talk because you don't have a lot of other tells as to whether you're a good guy or a bad guy. You know, people are like, oh, they talk a lot, so they must be a bad guy because usually they're silent when they're a good guy, things like that. It's it's that, plus they're walking weird around the spaceship. Oh, they're not really doing their tasks. That's kind of odd. And you can sort of pick up on who might be a, an imposter from there. Uh, plus, it, you know, what I love is when you get really deep into the meta and really it comes down to, like, you have to play your crewmate game in a way that will help you with your with your imposter game. You know, you got to act. I like to act. I've learned to act inconsistently as a crewmate so that I don't have a tell when I'm acting as when I'm actually the imposter. Um is, is those kind of things are what you try to do to keep people on their toes. So, yeah, I'm a massive fan. Uh, I hope, you know, they've got a new map coming out soon. I hope they keep up a regular release of content uh, so I can keep other people interested in playing with me because um, I'm always down to play a game. 
And I think that's exactly what's so good about it in just what you describe, that aspect of strategy that isn't mandated by the game. You don't have to do that to... That's not part of the game as it's programmed that you have to go those lengths, but just due to the social deductive element of it, it transcends the game and it goes to trying to read... It's similar to playing poker. You read other people, you, you pick up on their tells and you you make judgment calls based on that. Like, that's what it's going for. And I think just that that level of meta in Among Us is why I think it is going to have staying power. It's going to be like another Fortnite or PUBG that we'll be talking about it for at least another year, if not longer, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the only shame for it, in my personal opinion, is that the random matches are just not fun. I only like playing with people I know. I, I hate talk, playing with randoms because they usually just... They're just crap. <laughs> but, you know, that's the nature of the game. That's ultimately the limitation of it, I think. But a game that I do enjoy playing with randoms, mostly because you've got to play with some randoms, is Four Guys. And that, uh, I think there was, I don't know whether they call Four Guys a flash in the pan or whether it's still pretty hype, but it definitely had uh, a good few weeks where it was the game to talk about and the game to play. Uh, you know, uh, for those who haven't played it, it's you you play as a little jelly bean dude, and there's a hundred of you, and you basically make your way through, I don't know, I guess some wipeout style obstacle courses and, and challenges uh, as you, people get knocked out round around until you're the last bean standing and you grab the the winning crown. Uh, and again, I think just a a perfect game for this year, right? It, it, it's kind of Mario Party esque that it's simple, silly, fun is lends itself to that online space as a 100 player game uh that's easy to play and anyone can sort of just jump in and, and have a few rounds and have a good laugh and and walk away smiling uh i remember playing at pax last year before it came out and really enjoying it even though my uh i didn't win in that round uh when i played last year and i've actually yet to win a round i'm pretty pretty disappointed in my skills as a gamer in fall guys but uh yeah, I, again, I don't know if this is a game you got to try out this year, Brendan, either on you know PlayStation, where I think it was free on PS Plus when it launched, or on um, on PC. No, Fall Guys was totally one that just missed my radar in that I was aware it existed. I saw the huge build-up of it and people constantly talking about it for about a month or two, and I was sort of on that, that proverbial fence of, oh, well, if enough friends of mine get it and keep on asking me to go play it, like I'll I'll take the dive and buy it and give it a go. But then, like you alluded to, it seemed to have just disappeared in that it was everything people talked about for a solid month or two and then it just disappeared. I think for a lot of it, it was overtaken by Among Us in that mind share of a cooperative multiplayer game that you played with your mates in that people just shifted to Among Us and they seem to have stayed there. But it seems like Fall, Fall Guys was a proverbial flash in the pan. And in some ways, the, re- the reaction to Fall Guys was somewhat similar to Animal Crossing in that there was a good month or two when nearly everyone you knew was playing Animal Crossing, even people you would have never picked as gamers had picked up a Switch and had got into Animal Crossing. A lot of them didn't really last that long. Like, oh, I have at least one or I have at least two friends that I know that just briefly played it and then moved on to other things. But it was definitely everything 
that you saw gaming wise on your social media feeds and whatnot for for, for a good little while and Fall Guys very much I think fell into that category though I think long term Animal Crossing is going to have a more stable consistent user base and probably the more successful game but I'm sure relatively the indie devs behind Fall Guys are absolutely loving life right now because they even if it was only the hot thing for a month or two they, they still made it and they still did very well out of it so props to them yeah i have to agree i mean whether it continues on the same way as like a PUBG or a Fortnite, i mean probably not but i think it's hopefully got a strong enough fan base and it'll continue on and the guys uh and girls over at that team can continue developing new levels new seasons as they call them i suppose and it can just sort of just sit there as a, as a game, at least for me, that I'll, I'll probably go back to every now and then because I even enjoyed playing it by myself because it's just that that fun. Um, I don't necessarily need friends uh, that I know at least to play with me to, to have a good time. They're obviously better when there are some mates playing as well. But, you know, those were just some of the, the big games that took social media by storm. I'm more curious now to start talking about some of our highlights of our personal gaming in, in 2020. Uh, and I might throw to you first, Brendan, before I speak to my sort of favorite games of the year. I guess thinking back over the last 12 months and thinking of the games that released this year that I played, it, there really isn't that many options for me to choose as my, I guess, quote unquote, games of the year. So I think the first game I'm going to have to bring up and talk about is a bit of a cop out because some would argue it's not a 2020 game because that would be Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition in that that captivated me for 80 hours. It was such a experience. Like, honestly, I, I think it is truly one of the best JRPGs that have been developed thus far. Just everything from the story, the gameplay, that soundtrack. Like, we played a track from Future Connected, the add-on content that was exclusive to the the Switch remaster last week on last week's episode with John Dewis. And just that soundtrack is one of the, those composers compose some of the best tracks I've heard in gaming, honestly. And that's part of the appeal of Xenoblade Chronicles, but it is much more than just having a good soundtrack. Just the experience of playing it, the the places you visit, the, the characters, the story, like it all just comes together. And, I guess all the parts on their own, like none of it would probably be anything groundbreaking, anything sort of unreal, but it's just when you put it all together, you get this experience that, yes, I know people are out there that think it's sort of an average RPG, JRPG. There's people out there that didn't enjoy it, but personally, I think that it is a game that one of the best that has come out from Nintendo for the past 10 years, and people should definitely check it out if they have any inkling of an interest in jrpgs because it is something special after buying it three times i probably should finish it someday <laughs> maybe me oh please do like i bought it three times as well and this was the one i played it for about 20 hours and we i never touched the new 3ds version despite buying it at launch and it was the switch release that i was very much like well this is the definitive edition it has extra content this is the time to just sit down and play it and basically for about a month and a half I've chipped away at it every day after work I played about three four hours and 
slowly, surely, I got there because it is a daunting game because you pull it off your shelf and you look at it and you think, this is going to take me at least 60 hours to finish and you'll quickly put it back. But it is surmountable if you if you really want to get into it, is my view. Yeah, everyone I know that has seen it to completion has said very similar things to what you have just then, Brendan. So definitely on my radar as something I need to get back to, hopefully maybe over this holiday break and and try and chip away at it and, and actually get hooked, hopefully, and, and see it through to conclusion. And, you know, I, by all accounts, seemingly a franchise that's going to continue on strong for Nintendo and Monolith stuff in the future. So a good one to jump in and, and see where it all started with the original Xenoblade Chronicles. And if you love it, then try Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I suppose. Which I still need to get onto. That's another 80-hour epic on my list. <laughs> Or maybe one day. Well, maybe sticking, you know, with Nintendo, I'll jump onto my pick. And it's it's a bit of an interesting one for me. I mean, when I say it, you're going to say this is obvious, but I'll, I'll tell you why it, it shouldn't be obvious. And that's Animal Crossing New Horizons. We've obviously talked about it a lot in this episode already, so I won't say too much more about the phenomenon it was. But in any other year, I think Animal Crossing New Horizons actually might have been a bit of a disappointment for me uh, in the sense that, as someone who's played every Animal Crossing game when they came out, well, not the 64 one, because I don't live in Japan, but from GameCube onwards. You pleb. Yeah, I know. I'm not dedicated enough. I own a copy of it, though, that I got from Super Potato. Oh, that's dedication. I retract my copy. <laughs> Thank you. It, it's actually not the most fully featured Animal Crossing. Uh, it came out, we're missing a lot of stuff, right? And they sort of said, we're going to update it with new content. And they definitely have. They brought back diving and for, for sea creatures back in, in sort of the middle of the year. They've added the holiday events. Uh, they've added some more sort of emoticons, the ability to grow pumpkins, all that kind of stuff. But we're still missing so much from particularly Animal Crossing New Leaf, which I think is, is still the uh, most fully featured Animal Crossing game they've ever released. Uh, you know, there's no gyroids, which have been a series staple, no cafe, no ability to change sort of the time that my town functions on so if i work during the day i could change it so the shops are open till sort of 1am 2am so i'm not sort of hamstrung by uh what hours i'm actually able to play the game in that sense it's still a bit of a disappointment but in this year i've played it so much because it is such a fun comforting game where nothing bad happens for the most part as long as you don't let your turnip spoil (laughs) (laughs) It was a lifeline to the people I care about in that first half of the year, in that first lockdown. You know, my mum plays Animal Crossing, for example, so it was a great space for us to interact with each other online. Uh, that was not just a Zoom call, which was, which was welcoming. And, you know, it is still a really good game. Like, if you've never played an Animal Crossing game, the, this jump in because it is fun, it is enjoyable. It does have, yeah, it can get repetitive. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't, but I, I still think it's worth that experience for the f- the first few months that you'll be hooked on it, I reckon. So, and, and I think it, given its phenomenon status so this year, it does sort of stand up there as, as a game that symbolizes 2020 gaming for, uh, for me and forever will. I definitely echo your sentiments because I was coming at the series from someone who had never really gotten into Animal Crossing. I had 
briefly played is a wild world on the DS. Yeah. Yes, it was a wild world. And it was a game that my sister and I bought from EB Games or back when it first released or near release anyway. And we quickly took advantage of EB Games' seven-day return policy <laughs> and took it back because we just didn't really fear, like we weren't particularly captivated by it because we were, well, my sister was more into it than I, but we both played Sims, Sims 2. We were into that sort of, I guess, life simulation for lack of a better term, because, well, I, for one, wouldn't compare Sims to Animal Crossing. They're very <laughs> different propositions. But nonetheless, I, ju- I just didn't really feel it. I- and then since then, I always saw it as a franchise of, well, that's not a franchise particularly for me. So I never tried it again. I avoided it on the Wii. I avoided it on 3DS. I didn't touch Amiibo Festival, but I think I'm a better person for not touching Amiibo <laughs> Festival. But then 2020 came around. It was a perfect storm, as you described in that, especially in Australia, it came out in mid-March and it was March, right? It was yeah, May. Yeah, it was March, yep. Yeah, came out in mid-March. Everything started closing down around the time it released. Like, it hadn't been announced yet, but we were very sure that lockdown was going to happen. People were buying and hoarding toilet paper and whatnot, like every rational human being. So... It was in that context that Animal Crossing had just released and I was like, I just finished work early and I thought, oh, I'll go buy JB Hi-Fi and see if they still have a copy. If they have a copy, I'll pick it up and play it. And lo and behold, they had a copy left and I got sucked into it for about a month or two. And as someone who had never played the game before, I absolutely loved my time with it and maybe I'll go back soon if there's additional content and something captivates me to do so because... I think it is a very special game and despite all you described with missing content that was in other games and the like, which I do echo because I think there's a lot of UI decisions and just gameplay mechanic decisions uh, that are so archaic and dumb in that game, like the whole inventory system and crafting system, having to craft things individually one at a time that is just, you want to hit your head against a wall. Mm-hmm. But despite all that, it is a special game and it is quintessentially 2020 so i definitely see why you choose it as one of your games of the year yeah no i, th- I think yeah it's not my favorite game this year i don't think but it's definitely the game i'm going to remember the most for 2020 yeah i think if we were to pick another game that i guess we in retrospect we'd hold up as one of our favorites for 2020 due to the fact that i actually don't play that many games in a year and that my other favourite game of the year wasn't a 2020 release, which was Fire Emblem Three Houses, because as we know, Fire Emblem is one of those series that I always mention on this podcast. And I haven't quite finished Paper Mario Origami King, so even though I'm tempted to say that as my other quote-unquote game of the year, I'm a bit more hesitant, because there's another game that I'm partway through, and I'd have to go with that, I think, and that's actually Cyberpunk 2077, which yeah. I did discuss at length earlier, so I'll keep this brief. But despite all its flaws, despite some of the gameplay decisions, mechanic decisions in that it is an average PS4, Xbox One generation open world with a very good aesthetic and strong narrative and story design choices, I think just for that fact, well, provides an enjoyable experience for me because I am a gamer who very much enjoys a good narrative and a good story and 
I can get sucked into worlds. It's like it's like why I got sucked into the original Witcher when I finished that in 2019 when it was a over a decade old game and I was running on a very old laptop so I had to have it on the lowest graphical settings because otherwise, no joke, the, the grass animations would crash my laptop so I had to turn those off <laughs> to get it running. But I still enjoyed it because of the world CD Projekt Red built and the characters they built and the story they built around all that and they nailed that again in Cyberpunk 2077 for all the other flaws in that game that there's characters in there that you just... They, they captivate you and just the overall aesthetic and environment and story that it just all comes together on that level that there is something great there, but I just, like a lot of people, I wish that it had more time in the oven and they had made some different development decisions to make it the best it could have been because I think there's a lot of room to go and hopefully a lot of the patches and DLC and whatnot they have in the pipeline will alleviate a lot of the issues and get it to near that level because I think once it's there, a lot more people are going to get captivated by it and hopefully it's not too late by then. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I I was going to almost pick up Cyberpunk just because it did look pretty impressive. And I think it is something I would enjoy I would enjoy messing around because I, I do enjoy stuff like Grand Theft Auto and, and sort of these open world games from time to time. I almost would have got Watch Dogs Legion if, that was good, but apparently it's just meh or okay. So maybe it's the kind of thing I'll, I'll I'd consider picking up if I hear okay reports of the, you know, PS5, Xbox Series X versions down the track when I get one of those systems, uh, and and it's it's well and truly functional at that point. Because uh, yeah, I, I have looked at some of the screenshots and and the videos where where glitches don't occur, and it does look stunning, and the world just does seem enticing to explore you know dark gritty but but interesting by by all measures in many ways it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite last generation games xbox 360 ps3 generation games in alpha protocol which was another narrative driven rpg from well that was from obsidian and that had a lot of issues from on the technical side and on the gameplay side in that gun combating that was all was even worse than cyberpunk 2077 it was and there was certain builds you could have in that game that basically didn't work because of some of the boss encounters and the like so you always had to focus on guns and firearms even if you try to take a stealth approach but to cut a long story short there's a lot of similar hallmarks to that game in that that was sort of one of the best spy games that have ever been produced from a narrative world building design viewpoint like it it nailed that aesthetic you felt like a james bond type character and uh, and that's what cyberpunk does for the cyberpunk genre you get a glimpse into that world so i just think it's a shame that those games like that nail some parts of the brief just falls short in other departments and that's what they remembered for and i just hope cyberpunk isn't like alpha protocol in that there's people that absolutely love the game are big fans but for the most part, the general consensus is, oh, it was pretty average because of X, Y, Z. Well, sticking to the sort of futuristic themes, another game which sadly I've yet to finish, but I you know, talked a little bit about last week with John on the podcast, was 13 Sentinels by Vanillaware. Uh, sort of a niche, fairly quiet release on the PS4 this year, but one you should not overlook. 
Vanillaware are known for their beautiful 2D uh, sort of anime, but with a bit of like a, you know, watercolor paint sort of style art in their games. And obviously 13 Sentinels features that arguably their best ever, I would say. But the genre are very different to what they do, which usually is a bit more action-y, a bit more RPG uh, style with Muramasa or Odin Sphere or Dragon's Crown. 13 Sentinels is a mix of a visual novel and a sort of real-time strategy game. Uh, and when I say a mix, it's, it's almost like two distinct games in one telling a, uh, the same story where you pick either the RTS mode or the um, visual novel mode and have to regress both to eventually see the ending. And it's a game that involves a lot of time travel uh, and it involves swapping characters. As you can sort of guess, there's 13 of them. And while the story should be confusing, it really somehow comes together. Despite all those constant jumps from perspective, from various points in time, uh, and using a lot of, you know, sci-fi, fake made-up terms and words, it, it just works as you slowly sort of learn what this world's about. What are these 13 Sentinels, which are the, the giant robots, these, you know, high school kids pilot, because it's a Japanese game, so of course it's high school kids and giant robots. And culminates so far is is one of the, the better uh, narratives I've seen so far in 2020. I mean, again, it's a shame I haven't finished it. I would love to definitively say it's the best story, but I probably shouldn't say that um, until I've, I've put a pin in it. And it, it's something I'm definitely going to do. I think over the Christmas break is, is put in the last few hours. I think I need to get where I need uh, to, to the end. And the RTS combat is also, I wouldn't say it's, you know, the best out there, but it's certainly unique uh, and, and fortunately functional as well. Uh, so not unique in a bad way where it sort of has only three or so classes of units, but you've really got to manage their resources of those types of units to defeat whatever type of enemy you've come up because there's a bit of rock paper scissors mechanics to it all uh, maybe not too dissimilar to like a fire emblem or advanced wars in some regards so they can be quite short and quite sweet little battles uh, but definitely intense in just making sure you manage your units to the best of your ability to vanquish the enemy 13 Sentinels is a game that is definitely on my radar, especially after what what you described it to me earlier in the year when you first played it and what John said last episode. It's I'm a big JRPG fan. I like RTS. I've always enjoyed Vanillaware's fusion of genres. Like I think they tried something similar for Grim Grimoire on the PS2, even though I never really got into that game in depth. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in it. And I, I think... From what you've described, it is a game that I think should be on a lot more people's radars because it does seem like it was it was at least in about October, September, right, and then it just sort of disappeared. No one really talked about it afterwards. Yeah, well, even leading up to the release, it's one of those games that I've sort of was aware of for a number of years because again, I follow Vanillaware, and then I just forgot about it, and then all of a sudden, it was out. <laughs> And I was like, oh, this is coming out in three weeks. And I'm like, who has the cheapest? Amazon done, put a pre-order in, rocked up one day and, and popped in the PS4 and probably sunk a good two or three hours in that first night just because, again, I was very captivated by the story it was presenting me. And, I, again, I think what really helped, and if we sort of look at it in 2020 context, is 
that ability to choose how I want to progress in the story, whether it's the RTS mode or the the visual novel, because as an adult, as someone who works, and in particular in 2020, there are just some nights that I am mentally drained. And having the option of being like, I don't want to do an RTS battle, but I'm happy to sort of do some visual novel stuff, which requires maybe a little bit of light puzzle solving, but is mostly just reading of some text and um, walking around some some safe environments I can still do that and that really worked well where I, I've sort of been on weekends when I'm full of energy I've been plowing through the RTS stuff and then during the evenings doing a chapter or two of one of the character storylines which is has been fantastic for me sort of chipping away at this game. I very much feel like given the stages we are in our respective lives is that the games like that are sort of the perfect single-player games for us to play, the ones you can slowly chip away with, maybe nightly, maybe every week, maybe once in a while, and slowly get to the end of it. Because it's very hard to get invested in, oh, I'm, I want to play COD online, and I have to play constantly to get my perks up and to be able to compete against other people or, or compete against my friends or whatnot, whereas a single-player game like your 13 Sentinels or whatnot, you can allocate time and then decide well i'm going to slowly get through this and oh i haven't played it for a while but i do want to finish it i'll get there yeah anything that doesn't punish me for taking a hiatus and basically losing all that muscle memory that you need to play certain games is is a huge win which which in some ways while rpgs can be very long in in terms of their you know hours to complete they they do suit that style a lot better because uh, I don't need too much muscle memory to pick some options from a menu in a turn-based fight. <laughs> Speaking of turn-based fights and battles, my third pick of, well, if I had to pick a third game for my game of the year, it, this is a tough one because, well, as I alluded to earlier, I actually didn't finish that many 2020 games in 2020. There's a few that I'm sure I'll get to in the new year, like, well, the aforementioned 13 Sentinels, hopefully... I'll pick up a copy and plough through that because I think I'll enjoy it. But if I had to choose another game, I think it would have to be an indie game. And I'm going back and forth between Ring of Pain, which well, we had Mess on a couple of months ago, who was one of the devs on that game, or Warsaw. And both are turn-based games. And I think I have to go with Warsaw because... Warsaw is a tactical strategy RPG turn-based, similar to Darkest Dungeon. It's honestly heavily inspired by Darkest Dungeon. If you search up a screenshot of Warsaw, on, it's on Switch or PC and maybe on other consoles as well. It is very... The, the art style is very reminiscent. but And I guess the gameplay is as well. And it is interesting tactical strategy turn-based combat positioning is important where you position your four units on over a choice of eight different grids and certain attacks will affect different radiuses on your opponent's side of the field and on your side of the field or vice versa for the opponent's attacks on your side of the field but what I really enjoyed about Warsaw was the fact that the setting of the game is World War II Warsaw Uprising so it's a very dire setting where well, historically, the Polish resistance tried to rise up and drive out the Nazis towards the end of the Nazi occupation in 1945. And 
they failed and it was brutally crushed in sort of the dying days of the German occupation. And as a game and as an experience, it, it does manage to capture that. It is a very dire and gritty game. It, it's a hard game. It's able to send through that sort of that historic message of this is what it was like. Well, this is a snapshot of some of the experiences that people had in that historic moment. And I guess if, if people are interested in more on this game, I, I did pen a review for the Thirsty Mage website and I'll post a link in the description. And I think if anyone interested in or historical games and in strategy games, it's definitely one to have a look at because I'm sure it'll go on sale at some point on the eShop or on Steam. And it's definitely something worthwhile to dabble in. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, it doesn't sound like my personal cup of tea, but in you as a history buff, I can see how it'd be appealing. And it's also good to see, coming from an indie studio, that it, it is one of your you know top games of the year. Well, exactly, and I guess there's no other game that, when I'm given control for the first time, I go into an encounter and then I'm up against a German tank and all I have are machine gun wielding units that don't do much damage to this tank and... My entire party's wiped because it's, oh, okay, well, that happened. And then I, I, I sort of sit back and I think, well, was that unfair because sort of it was just thrown at me? Or is that sort of part of the game? Because it's, in a way, replicating part of the experience of that. This pop, Something like this probably would have happened and this would have been the consequence. It's similar to a part of the game is there's inventory management and ammunition management of there's three type of guns you're sort of, light medium and heavy guns and you have ammo corresponding to those and at one point i only had characters with guns that use medium ammo and i ran out of medium ammo so it was what resulted was nearly a 40 turn encounter when all i could do was melee knife attacks against (laughs) the enemy and keep on healing my units and knife attack healing knife attack and it was honestly ridiculous like I, i shouldn't have enjoyed it but there was part of me that was like well like this was due to my own choices like I didn't equip my party correctly and now I have to do this. Like, this is only on me. And I think there's part of me that enjoy games that do that to me and that it feels fair in the punishing way that, like, I'm being punished for my decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's also some, like, man, if you pull that off kind of thing, like, you know, beating that many, whatever, tanks or whatever with just knives over 50 turns, the satisfaction would be immense. I'm sure it was, assuming you finished that fight. <laughs> Exactly. All right, well, I'll move on to my last game, and it's a bit tough one because there are a few games I beat that I definitely enjoyed this year. I'm, you know, moving out, Necro Barista, Paper Mario. But again, I'm going to go with one that I haven't finished yet, but I, I still think stands a little bit above the rest, and like yours, also an indie game. Uh, and that game is Spiritfarer, and that is, it's been a big one for me this last few weeks, and maybe the recency bias is, is strong. But I do think it is a special game. So if, you know, it's sort of similar to Animal Crossing in that uh, it is kind of that pseudo life simmy kind of game. It sort of incorporates elements of like Harvest Moon or Story of Seasons or Stardew Valley, depending on uh, your farming game of choice where, uh, you know, you've got plants, you've got animals that you, you harvest for resources, you go mining and, and cutting down trees and that kind of stuff. But the theming of it and what the shell of I guess which is all wrapped in is is very different uh, effectively you are the spirit fairer hence the name of the game which is sort of taking 
elements of, of Greek mythology in a sense of the river Styx, and you're effectively the, the boat person who takes people from the, the living world to the afterlife. But unlike that mythology, it's actually quite a cheerful and happy looking game where you're, all, the, all the spirits take the form of uh, initially these hooded, cloaked little creatures and eventually animals that all sort of anthropomorphic animals that live on your boat. Uh, and the boat itself is is sort of a 2D platformer style of control, unlike a top-down sort of farming view. And you invite these spirits onto your boat. And as you do so, you sort of realize that the main character, Stella, has typically a relationship with at least the majority that I've encountered so far. It's never directly said, but they will talk to you like they know her. Uh, and you can, you know, some of them are very obvious. Like one of them blatantly calls you his niece so clearly it's your uncle right and as they spend time on your boat you basically have to sort of do various tasks that they need you to get done take them certain places in this this world of of the sort of i guess quote-unquote river which has many islands on it or collect certain items for them or maybe just make them their favorite meal uh and as you do so they tell you more and more about their life all culminating to usually something around how they you know, came to pass, uh, and and sort of them coming to terms with whatever that may be, and take them to what's called the Everdoor, where you give them a hug and you know send them on their way. Uh, so it's quite a melancholic game, and you know can can tug on certain heartstrings quite a lot. And trigger warning: if you've you've had uh, anyone close to you pass away for you know some of the various reasons, like certain illnesses that are quite common, or um. Uh, it's very likely some of those will be touched on uh, and, and may, you know, trigger memories of a loved one you've lost. Uh, it certainly has for people I know and, and uh, myself. But it is really such a nice game and mechanically it works great. I actually like the sort of side-scrolling element rather than the top-down view. It sort of makes it fun to traverse around the boat and then the islands you go on compared to sort of, you know, walking around in, in Starby Valley is more just a... a mechanic to get from point a to b rather than something that's enjoyable to do but unlike something like stardew and, and more in, in line with something like animal crossing there's very little pressure in fact maybe even less pressure than animal crossing to do anything within a certain time frame like there's no failure state the character has no health bar you sometimes feel overwhelmed with the amount of tasks you've got in your quest log that you sh- could do but there's really no pressure to do them fast or you know, there's no punishment for doing them slow, I guess I should say. Uh, there's a day and night cycle, but it's, again, much like a, a harvest moon or something. It's it's not linked to real life. It just constantly moves over the course of maybe like, let's say, 10 minutes or something, I think a, a day takes. And it's quite beefy. I mean, I'm probably like 15 hours in and I've probably got at least another five or six to go based on what I was reading online. And uh, so you definitely get your, you know, your money's worth out of it. You know, and in some ways, again, another another one that fits this year in a, in a, a year where, uh, sadly, a lot of people are probably facing some loss uh, of people they know due to this disease. And this game sort of helps deal with those themes and, and might be of interest to you if you're looking to sort of explore that a little bit further uh, in, in video game form. It's co-op as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's the other good thing about it. It does have a co-op mode. So Stella has a, a little cat that follows her around and can do everything she does 
So uh, some of the activities, like for example, if you're playing on single player, if you saw a log, you just yeah, clicking left to right on the control stick. But if you're playing with a friend, you can go left to right. You know, one does left, one does right. And you got to time the back and forth. So yeah, you can participate with a friend. I don't think online, or if you can do it online, I haven't tried, but definitely local co-op, you can on Switch. I think it's also an Xbox Game Pass if you have that and don't want to plump down the, I think, 20 or so bucks that it costs. And it's on Stadia, if anyone who listens to this <laughs> podcast actually has Stadia. Yeah, maybe um, maybe cloud gaming is a good representation of the uh, sort of the the in between world of of the alive and the uh, the dead, I suppose. So maybe that's a fitting platform for it to be on. And also, I'll just finish by saying the music and the graphics are both very nice. You know, beautiful art, you know, style like hand drawn, cartoony style, plus very nice music that I don't know sort of would be not out of place in maybe like a, a fantasy, like Harry Potter-esque kind of movie, if that makes sense, um, or maybe like a Pan's Labyrinth or something like that. It's, it's just very whimsical, but, but very well done. It definitely shows that indie games very much did have a good 2020, despite all the challenges, and that there were some standout games or release history from the smaller studios in our hobby, which I think is always something that should be applauded. So it's great to see that there's experiences like this that keep on being churned out that are relatively innovative experiences in that they might be a culmination of genres that already exist and game ideas that already exist, but the way they're put together is generally in ways that haven't been attempted yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, we're in a world where I think very few games are wholly unique, but... um. They are unique when in the in what they are because of the combination of elements that haven't been fused before uh, to make something that stands out. So, yeah, Spirit Pharaoh is a is, and even a lot of the games we've talked about today are, are really good examples of that philosophy, I suppose. Anyway, I think with that, with that bright note of talking up indie devs, which I think we both agree are near and dear to our hearts when it comes to gaming. It's about time to wrap up our look back to 2020 and also to wrap up blowing cartridges of 2020, even though it's likely that you, dear listener, will be listening to this in 2021. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has listened to us throughout the second half of 2020 since we launched this podcast. But thanks for listening. And as always, please tell us what you think. Tell us if this is a bad podcast, tell us if it's a good podcast. Tell us if we need to fix audio levels or editing process or anything because we really appreciate everyone who does listen to us and does take the time to talk to us about what we talk about and how we put it together. And I guess I can only speak for myself, but it's definitely been quite the experience launching this podcast and putting it together on a fortnightly basis and I guess at its base level, getting together with Zach frequently and just talking about what's on our mind and talking about games and particular issues in gaming that we find interested in. And hopefully we can continue it well into 2021. Yeah, thank you know, thanks, Brendan. I have to likewise echo the sentiment of thanking all our uh, regular and even irregular listeners who have given us a chance. Um, really appreciate uh, your time you know, that you make to, to listen to a us two bozos 
Uh, obviously, Brendan, have to thank you as well for for not, for embarking on this this journey. And uh, I would I would be remiss to not point out doing a, a fair the lion's share, I'd say, of the work as you've taken on the duties of editing, whereas I just have <laughs> rambled on microphone mostly. So without you, the show definitely wouldn't happen. So thank thank you for what's been a a good start to our our podcast in in this year and fingers crossed you know 2021 and beyond we just improve uh ramble less uh eventually get to do our full deep dive into paper mario the origami king and uh just continue to talk about this this hobby we love and have at least a couple of people care to listen precisely and as always if you want to reach out to us do it by email blowing cartridge at gmail.com do it on Twitter at BlowCartPod. Do it on Facebook also at BlowCartPod or Blowing Cartridges Podcast. Contact Zach at Eggarino on Twitter or contact me at Tamazoid on Twitter. And also leave a review on Apple iTunes Podcast or whatever it's called these days. Leave a five-star review. Leave a written review. We appreciate it all. And please tune in for our next episodes in 2021 where we will talk about who knows what but i'm sure it will be a interesting and fascinating discussion just remember a subscription to the blowing cartridges podcast is the best gift you can get your loved ones around the holidays because it's free but they don't have to know that (laughs) they do not have to know that indeed and on that note i almost forgot but zach is always is the one that reminds me of these things merry christmas and happy new year to all our listeners Yep. Thank you. Even though it's probably belated by the time you listen to it. Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one. With... The sentiment still matters, Zach. Yeah. Well, that's... Yep, we've done it. We've given the sentiments, so... Let's go back to drinking eggnog and eating many foods. Given yeah. West, it's still Christmas for us right now. <laughs> yeah.